Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad that you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. I want to welcome you. I want to welcome you those, uh, welcome those who are joining us online. It is going to be a great day. And I'm not sure if you saw the relevance of that deeply interactive question of asking your neighbor the condition of their windshield. I'm hoping to make some more sense of that, but hope, hopefully you got a chance to just engage and interact with one another and meet some people. That's why we're here. So today I have a confession uh, for you. And before you go into a ditch, um, here it is. For years, for years, I have struggled understanding and reading my Bible for years, okay? Now, as a kid, I grew up listening to stories of the Bible on record, vinyl record. That's how old I am, I guess. But um, when I was a kid, I had like this picture Bible. I don't know if any of you had one of those, and it was awesome, and I loved it. I loved all of the stories in it. I grew up hearing that this book was uh, alive. It was active. It was powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. But if I was honest, at times it felt like it was dull or I was dull. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, I'd make approaches like many of us, I'm sure, where you would basically do Bible roulette. You know what that is, right? Where you just flip it, point, Read passages, right? Totally out of context. Judas went and hung himself. No. Go thou and do likewise. My gosh. Um, maybe maybe uh, you tried the yearbook method, right? You remember when you were a kid, get your yearbook, you'd open it up, look, look for all the pictures of yourself. I, I think a lot of times, you know, we lean into scripture that way. Just, what does it say about me? Me, 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 me. All right, and that was me. Um, now, strangely, I have been to places on this earth where people have been executed for distributing Bibles. I've been to uh, villages in India where people walk seven days to get a Bible. But my Bible was seven inches on my nightstand, and I was struggling to open it up. It feel, felt like a chore. It felt like a task, something on a checklist. And, and I don't know about you, but it, it created a lot of tension inside of me because for the most part, I just I started to feel a lot of shame. I felt inadequate, unskilled. What's wrong with me? Um, why am I so bad at this? I drew conclusions. Maybe you've drawn conclusions. I mean, by a show of hands, how many of you would also say, I've felt like this before? How many of you would keep your hands up and say, I'm currently feeling like this? Yeah. All right. Well, what, what transformed things for me almost two decades ago is simple, but it's not easy. And I want to share my story with you because I think it'll, it'll cast some light, some clarity. Um, but here's what happened. First, I realized that I was looking at life through a lens, okay? And the lens that I was looking through had, had filter, a filter over it from, from different areas we're going to talk about. Uh, those filters had fingerprints, smudges. If you saw my glasses, you'd wonder how I can even see out of them. Um, 
But last, the simple thing that completely transformed things for me was the Jewishness of Jesus. And, and over time, I realized that the way I was seeing things wasn't the way that it necessarily is or was. It was just the way that I was seeing things. So my way of seeing had a why. And we're going to talk about that. Now, we're in a series titled The Real Jesus, and we are talking about Jesus, the word that became flesh. We are also talking about the primary message of Jesus, which is the kingdom of God. We're also talking about this special or unique group of people called the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, and we are talking about the Jewishness of Jesus. It's big. All right? Now, in Matthew 16, 13 through 15, Jesus asks a really, really important question. Okay, now remember, in Jewish culture, rabbis, they ask questions as tools. They use these tools to train, to teach Oftentimes, uh, a rabbi is asking a disciple a question to see if his disciple understands something. Uh, you would say, how are you doing? They would reply, compared to what? There was a question and question, whole dynamic that was taking place. And that's what, what's happening here. Jesus is asking a question. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But who, or excuse me, but what about you? He replied, Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Now this is a timeless question. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's a question that we should ask again and again, month after month, week after week throughout our lives. And Jesus asked this question to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time. But I believe today he is asking that question to us. Who do you say I am? Now, in addition to this question, Jesus asked a couple of other questions. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good question. Jesus replies, what is written in the law, or some of your Bibles will say scriptures, what is written in the scriptures, he replied, how do you read it? How do you read it? Apparently, that we read it is not as important as how we read it. It's not just the content that's key. It is the context. The context is key. Now, why is that important? Because how I read it and who I said that Jesus was, to me, was affected by quite a bit. Now, none of us, none of us, those of you joining us online, 
You don't come into this moment with a clean lens. All of us have been impacted or affected. We have filters. Are you aware of your filters? Are you or have you ever even considered uh, how you read things or how you see Jesus? Now, what happened to me and what can happen for us is we have to take a moment to look at these situations, these filters, and address them in order to be able to answer this question in a more accurate or in a clearer way. So the title of this message is, Who Do You Say I Am? Now this book right here, the one that we've come to believe is the book that leads us to life, abundant life, has a very specific way of thinking and a specific way of living. The instructions that come from this book, when they're seen accurately, they produce in our hearts a childlike curiosity, a passion, and a a desire to see the word that became flesh, Jesus, and experience a quality of life beyond our wildest imaginations. Is that how you feel about it? Well, let me tell you a few of the filters that I dealt with that I think you will see affect you. The first filter is this, history, historical filter, all right? Think about your history. Where you grew up, period of time you grew up. I grew up in the 80s. Everybody loves that time period right now. Shows like Cobra Kai, making a comeback about the Karate Kid, okay? What, what period of time did you grow up in? Why is that important? Well, because the period of time you grew up in, uh, maybe in your family there was some customs or there was things that were... Um, brought about in your community. For me, growing up in the context of my church environment, playing cards were of the devil. Dancing leads to sex. It's a whole movie, Footloose, about it, right? Um, Trauma, experience, denominationalism, all of it has a source. All of it has a history. Those histories create habits. And when we begin to look at them, we can begin to understand where they came from. It's like when uh, God asked Adam, who told you? Who told you that you're naked? It's rare that we ever kind of confront, who told me this? Now recently, um, I have endeavored to uh, teach my boys, they're going to be 13 and 16 this year, two really important ages to growth and maturity. And so I've been thinking about how I could share with them uh, about their heritage, about our family heritage. My mom is a full-blooded Italian, and uh, there are parts of that heritage in our family history that are really healthy. And there are parts that are really unhealthy, okay? So I decided to take them to the grave, uh, grave sites of my grandparents, 
they're here in Scottsdale, in South Scottsdale, and so I took the boys there, and I proceeded to tell them about their history. Um, and as I was doing it, I started realizing that I was telling them things about their history, much like you would in sharing yours if you know it, um, about parts of their family that were interesting and dysfunctional and great. Um, but I also noticed as I was telling the story that I was highlighting things uh, about that part of my history like Italian food. That's something I'm very happy about. Um, I love pasta. Anybody else? Okay. But there was also something that I saw that I began to realize and, and recognize uh, earlier before this moment. But in an Italian home, there is what I would refer to as patriarchal dominance. That means that men are way up here. At least in my family they were. And women were over here. When I was growing up, all of the women spent time during holidays in the kitchen. All of the men did not. That had an impact on me. As I got married, I spent the majority of my time in the place that I watched my predecessors go. In the living room. While my wife went into the kitchen. Until I confronted that and saw where that was coming from because the Italian heritage has a background. In the Roman Empire, movies that you may even watch, 300, where you see like, yes, but you'll see a separation from the Hebraic heritage of Scripture that is also part of our family history. Have you ever seen something like this in the Bible? It'll be up on screen. It's called the historical timeline. Now, before you roll your eyes and yawn, this is actually in some of your Bibles, some of your study Bibles. And there's lots of ways to read Scripture, right? But we have to remember that this is a story, real people, real place, real time. And it's about a God unfolding that story and his passionate pursuit of people, all right? Now, I want to draw your attention to two places on this timeline. The first one is 722 B.C., Israel. Descendants of Abraham, God's unique, God's chosen, God's unique tribe of people through whom he would bless all nations of, uh, of the world uh, on earth. Now their story is major to this story. That is why we're talking about it. But it's major. And they had a language. They had a way of thinking. They had a way of life, covenants and blessings that Jesus was very familiar with and through which God would choose to bless the nations of the earth. They had a text, the Hebrew scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament. Does the word old create lots of enthusiasm and excitement? Probably not. But they saw it as the Hebrew scriptures. And the Hebrew scriptures, we're going to see at the end, is vital, critical to our understanding of the text as a whole. Okay, I'm going to show you another picture on this timeline. But before I do, let me just set the tone. No, no brownie points, no gold stars, uh, no condemnation, no shame. I'm going to ask a question. Do you know what year Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were alive on the earth? Okay, right now, I want you to turn to the person beside you and just blurt out what you think. Go, blurt it out. Just blurt it out. Don't worry, no gold stars, don't feel bad, just what you think. All right, 
Okay, now I asked, I asked a group of people. I won't bust chuck them, but I got lots of fun answers. 1600 AD, AD, 1600, 1200, 600. Um, maybe you guys answered, it's okay, it's all right. But let's show the picture. Here's the reality. 469 BC, before Christ, Socrates, 428 BC, Plato, 384 BC, Aristotle. And some of you right now are just feeling so great about yourselves because you got the answer right. Okay, not the point. Some of you are like, who cares, Brad? Who cares? Why does this even matter? Great. I want to tell you why. Because while we owe a lot to these philosophers, what they taught us, brought great insights into reason, truth, wisdom, beauty. They paved the way for uh, incredible thinking, innovative thinking in mathematics, astronomy, philosophy. This, This type of thought would highly influence Western culture. It created what is referred to as Hellenism, Greek culture and thought that most of us have been immersed in. We grew up in the way of thinking. Even even when we stand on stages, that comes out of Greek culture and thought. But their rational ways, their hyper-rational ways also, which were very different than Hebraic ways of communication, started bleeding into the arena of the spiritual. They took application in one area, tried to make application in the other, and its fingerprints are all over the church fathers and scholars. And they've led us adrift. Things like dualism. I know you, I know you just thought, God, I can't wait to come to church and hear about dualism. But in reality, this is a division of body and soul. The, the Platonism and the Greek philosophers saw this world as evil, as inherently evil. And we must escape. We've got to escape this world through piety and intellect and intelligence. We've got to escape and get out of here. Now, before you start disconnecting yourself from this place, when I was growing up, we, we sang songs about when we all get to heaven and all fly away. The, the dominant narrative in my mind is this place stinks. We got to get out of here. The dominant narrative, we've got to get people to believe in Jesus to prepare them to die. As opposed to get them to follow Jesus and change the world. See, to a Hebraic mindset, this is craziness. To any Hebrew of Bible times, this kind of talk would be irresponsible, unrealistic, a cop-out, seeking to abandon the present material world while focusing on the joys of the truly spiritual world to come. Hmm. Think about how you have looked at. To the Hebraic mind, everything that God created was good. God gave us all things to richly enjoy. Is that how you think about things? Because this would give rise to things like asceticism, punishment, self-denial, monasticism, celibacy. And while these things can produce 
things of health, they also create a very fixated and fascinated focus on doing stuff to become more spiritual, where the Hebraic mind, the mind of Jesus, the biblical historical mindset was on relationship with and friendship with God and working with God to bring about shalom, wholeness, completeness, beauty here, to repair a broken world. Because if you read Revelations, Jesus is returning here. Is that how you thought about things? It would give rise to Gnosticism, which the emancipation would come through knowledge, Gnosis. Do you think that way? The more knowledge I have, the more things that I can just quote, uh, that then I'll be free. All, all kinds of great philosophers, Epicureanism, Stoicism, but off kilter from the Hebraic roots. Are you with me? What does this mean for us? Am I, are we seeing Jesus clearly? Or do we need to clean some debris off of our lens? It's awareness. When we see this, we can see that we have bents and biases. That's what I started to see. I started realizing that the Hebraic mindset, the mindset of Jesus, uh, the mindset when they read scripture was not a westernized mindset. It was definitely different. So when they would read the stories, uh, they would start different than what we would see from this westernized mind. They would start with in the beginning God, and over here there would be some mythological source of how their gods came to being, but not in the Hebrew mind. Every story was what is this saying about God, not what is it saying about me. What is the story saying about God, and what are the implications for me? It would give way to a lot of heresy. It, it would create imbalances. Preston used this word, this phrase, the hypostatic union. Basically, the deity and humanity of Jesus. So these heresies would come. They'd start to, they would overemphasize the humanity. Jesus was just like a magician and a circuit preacher like Tony Robbins out there of this day. And then the church would come back with uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which emphasizes what? The supernatural origins of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. What about his life? Does his life make any difference to those of us who follow Jesus? Yes. So through the Hebraic lens, we bring back a balance. Fully God, fully man. Does that help us? One author stated that this has led to spiritual schizophrenia. Can you, can you see that? How do you read it? Who do you say that he is? How did you get there? Filter number two is culture. This image that's on the screen, every one of us know it. It's the Last Supper. 1498, Leonardo da Vinci paints Jesus and the apostles at the Passover Seder. It is uh, a, an image that has riveted the minds of the world for centuries. Beautiful as it is, it is full of critical historical inaccuracies. Inaccuracies, right? The long linear table is wrong. The loaves of bread and fish, the time of day, it's daylight out. These are wrong. It was painted in light of da Vinci's Renaissance culture. Take a look at another picture. 
a more accurate rendering. We see that there's a triclinium, a three-sided table with cushions on the floor. There's matzah and lamb. It's evening. This is a time they would celebrate the Passover Seder. Think about other periods of time, like during the Byzantine era. I know you think, what is going on with this guy? No, no. Get this. The Byzantine era, which was marked by emperors. They paint pictures of Jesus like a divine emperor. During the medieval period, when there is hardship, suffering, Jesus is seen as like a suffering victim. What about in our Western American culture? Some have called it classic wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Jesus looks uh, like he's got blue eyes and long hair. He looks like a hippie surfer. He's like a successful, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneur um, <laughs> who built his corporation and changed the world. Here's it, here it is. Why is, this, why is this important? It's important because every age has painted Jesus through the filter of what's going on in that time. We do it today. You can see its implications, its ripple effect. What do we do? We've got to return to the historical roots of Christianity to see the biblical Jesus. Now, psychologists have coined an acronym for the attitudes of European American culture. It's great. It's weird. This is the acronym. Weird. Western, educated, industrialized, um, rich, democratic. And you're saying, oh, I'm not rich. Compared to 98% of the world, you are. What do you mean? You have easy access to food and housing. You feel somewhat secure about your future or at least your survival. That makes you rich compared to the rest of the world. This culture shapes how we see and what we see. I read this study about two groups of students, Bible school students, an American group of students and a Russian group of students. They were asked to read Luke 15, what we have called or referred to as the uh, story of the prodigal son. Read Luke 15, close their Bibles, retell it. 100% of the American students left out what 95% of the Russian students left in. The study is referred to as the forgotten famine. Now in the story, you may be going, huh? The wayward son takes his dad's inheritance, gets almost to the end of it. Then the Bible says a great famine occurs and he heads back home to his dad. Well, why is this important? Well, because none of the American students saw that. And why did the Russians see it? Well, his, in their history, seven years before, uh, they experienced a famine which in turn put their attention on that part of the passage. What aren't we seeing? What aren't we seeing because we are weird? It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't need me, you need to move. It just means you need to be aware. This affects us. The Bible is written with Jesus telling parables about farmers and fishermen. It doesn't necessarily evoke a visceral response unless those of us who love to fish. No, I'm just kidding. But there is a difference in the context and ours, and it creates blind spots. It, it just means that we have to be aware of it so we might lean in with more intention. 
Eugene Nida, he's a Bible translator, had a 40-year career with the uh, American Bible Society, traveled to 80 countries. He's been referred to as encountering more cultures than anyone else who ever lived. Here's what he said. He believes that much of the world has less difficulty understanding the Bible than modern Americans because the rest of the world thinks in we they live in cultures and, and, and uh, they live in villages and places where we is a priority as opposed to me. The Bible is written in the space and time where the people realize that they affect we. It's not all about me. This has dynamic opportunities to transform us if we're willing to see it, if we're willing to understand it, because our history hinders our hermeneutics. What does that mean, Brad? Our, biblic, our, our interpretation of the Bible. All right? What is hindering your ability to see Jesus and read Scripture? Last filter is this, is language. Now, translating from one language to another is tricky. Example. Uh, there was a very large beverage company that had a slogan, turn it loose, turn it loose. And they decided to take this campaign um, and translate it uh, overseas into Spanish, uh, which resulted in the slogan, suffer from diarrhea. <laughs> Needless to say, the beverage didn't sell well, okay? Um, 2006, Clairol decided to introduce a cur curling iron called the Mist Stick, sold off the shelves in the U.S., uh, they decided to introduce the product to Germany, except for they didn't realize that uh, mist in German is slang for manure or excrement. So, needless to say, their manure stick didn't sell very well. It was a failure, okay? Uh, Pepsi ran a slogan, come alive with the Pepsi generation, in Chinese, translates, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave, okay? <laughs> it's great, practical. Translation is tricky, so is Bible translation. Because ancient Hebrew is a sophisticated, is utilizing sophisticated communication techniques, things like parables that are specific to the Jewish people. At a time, Jesus is using these parables, uh, what is referred to as Hebraic idioms or figures of speech. Um, Brad Young, in his book, Jesus the Jewish Theologian, he writes this. When Jesus is viewed among the Gentiles, the significance of Jewish culture and custom is minimized or forgotten altogether. But when Jesus is viewed as a Jew within the context of first century Judaism, an entirely different portrait emerges. This is what happened to me. I picked up the Hebraic spectacles and I started to see some profound things. I had to let go. I had to learn. Then I had to let go so that I might grab hold of what scripture, the, the proper context, and it gave me so much light. Let me give you some examples, all right? First, I learned about the educational system that Jesus would have grown up in. Remember, Jesus' parents were, were Jewish. They were devout. Uh, Jesus was Torah observant. He celebrated the festivals. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Jesus was and is Jewish. 
when I started to read about the educational system, this is what I picked up. Uh, in, in the Jewish practice, they used honey in a special ceremony on the first day of school. So the child is coming to school, the teacher is waiting for them, and they had a slate, and on it was two passages of Scripture, Leviticus 1.1 and Deuteronomy 33.4. Already I was interested because I wanted to know what those said. Then they had a phrase uh, written, the Torah will be my calling. The teacher would read the words to the child. The child repeated them back. The Torah will be my calling. Then his slate was coated with honey, and the child licked the honey off the slate, which would give reference to the book of Ezekiel. I ate it, or excuse me, uh, after eating the scroll, I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. After this ceremony, the child was given sweet cakes to eat with Bible verses from the Torah written on them. I grew up memorizing scripture. I didn't have that. That's a whole nother level. Think about the association to delight and pleasure. Is that how you look at your Bible? Is that how you look at the word that became flesh, Jesus? Can that, can that unlock something? It started unlocking things for me. I started realizing that the highest form of worship in the ancient Hebraic mindset was learning. Preston said it last week, if you weren't here, lovers are learners. Lovers are learners. We don't study to become scholars and get my reward from you. You're really smart. You threw out a lot of isms today. No, I study to become a steward of my life of my family, of what God has entrusted me with so that I might be able to actually uh, steward and, and bring blessing to this earth and through my family that I might transform. Yes, there's trauma in my background, but that story ain't all the story because when I lean into this story, it unlocks things for me. Hebraic idioms, what I mentioned, figures of speech. We, we have them in our culture. Beat around the bush, kick the bucket, it's raining cats and dogs, piece of cake. Outside of our culture, nobody has any idea what we're talking about. But Jesus had figures of speech that were rooted in historical, biblical understanding, rooted in a people. And sometimes if you read them without understanding the context, you'll miss it. Jesus talks about having a good eye or an evil eye. I mean, we have a New Age movement that started off of uh, misunderstandings out of context about third eyes. Here's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a good eye is having a generous attitude. And an evil eye is being stingy and self-centered and self-focused. When you live with a bad, evil eye, whatever your Bible says, life isn't Abundant and incredible. So Jesus encourages to have a good eye. Talking about foxes. When we think about a fox, it's someone who's clever or sly or a silver fox, whatever that means. Um, but Jesus, when he refers to foxes, he, he has a meaning for it. Pretentious, pompous, arrogant. Go back in your Bibles. See where it says that word. See who he's referring to. It will bring clarity. I realized that the, the, the biblical Hebrew had about 8,000 words com, 
compared to our English language, which has 100,000 words. I love tacos. I love my wife, right? Not a whole lot of depth. But the comparison is, um, you can think of it like this. English has 100,000 super tiny little suitcases. And there's very specific meaning. But in Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, these suitcases are enormous. Tons of room in it. It's why we have so many Bible translations. Because the translators have to pick one of the rich, incredible meanings. So they, the scholars decide on what they think. Well, let's go with this. And that's why it's important to read multiple translations. You can go to places like BibleGateway.com and get a bunch of translations to read and to dig. This book is a treasure chest. Do you see it that way? Some of the words that I unpack that help me immensely, I believe they'll help you. You know, we, we hear the word or have grown up with the word like obey. And, and to me, that word felt restrictive, mindless, robotic, even militant. Like God was like, do what I say. But here's its root. This is the Hebrew word. Hangs on our walls, on our values. It's the word shema. We love to shema. Tell me if this does anything different for you like it did for me. Shema means to hear, to listen, to understand, and to respond or take action. Obedience to me was do what I say. This word was romantic. It was instructive. It was caring. This is the word that God uses for you and I to obey. Every time you see it, listen, hear, understand, and take action. I'm leading you to life beyond your wildest imagination. Shalom, which we think peace. Peace, that's, that's it, shalom, Jesus, shalom. It's so much richer. We're, we're to bring shalom to the earth. Wholeness, completeness, health, well-being. There's a phrase in the Hebrew, tukun alam, to repair a broken world. You and I are actually to get in on the action. There's more. There's more for us than just to work our jobs outside our homes, to gain our identity. God's interested in us stewarding our homes, teaching our children, instructing them with loving guidance so that we together might bring a generous heart and attitude through our actions and activity that is less rooted in some hyper-spiritual, hyper-rational conversation and it's more rooted by showing up for your neighbors with food and good drink and having conversations regarding life. I'm on a tangent. The last word is Torah or Torah. Where we've gotten the interpretation, I'll tell you where it's come from, the law. That sounds exciting. The law, decree, regulations. But this word or this translation came from the Greek, nomos. I mean, most, most of our legal documents, Latin, uh, they, 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 this concept, this is not the word for Torah. The word comes from a root, meaning to shoot straight, like an archer, shooting straight. It's instruction, teaching, Loving guidance. But when you hear the law, those fingerprints leave a, a, a blur. And so when, when we hear things in Scripture, it creates disconnection for us. 
Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the Torah. He came to fulfill it or fill to the full or rightly interpret it. Wait a minute, Brad. I thought we were free from the law. Which law are you free from? Romans 8, the law of sin and death. And thank God that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we're free from that law. But free unto what? Life. And your loving Father, your good, good Father, gave instructions. Jesus came to fulfill it. I grew up hearing terms like binding and loosing. And, and they were very super sensational. And we would bind the enemy and loose things on the earth. I heard one person say, we've been binding the enemy so long, why is he still on the loose? <laughs> well, while that's great for you, that's not what it's saying. It's talking about permitting and forbidding things. Jesus says to Peter, give me the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what does that mean? He's given them the responsibility to interpret things. And if we go to Acts 15, the council at Jerusalem, they're doing just that. Jesus had to go away and there was going to be some things that come up. That's why we have church governance to this day. We, we, we interpret things. We, we, we bring some additional insights based on what's taking place. Ideas like being covered in the dust of the rabbi transformed me. This idea of following so closely to the rabbi that his sandals would kick up dust. And I started recognizing. I, I, I've been distanced through these ideas of, of over there instead of right here. Am I following Jesus practically? Jesus said, he who hears these words puts it into practice. Was I even seeing Jesus in his humanity or only through his deity? Did I see the meaningful meals that he was having? Where, where the experts, the overpious religious leaders were calling him a wine-bibber and a glutton. You don't get that name if you are not participating in meaningful meals. Jesus was doing that. Are we doing that? Jesus walked everywhere. Physically, he would have been stronger than the majority of us because of that. He never ran. He never hurried. Interesting. I heard one person say that the speed of the soul is three miles per hour. The speed of walking. And it's interesting as you look that we're invited. Yes, some will translate follow after me. But the actual translation is walk after me. Think about how busy you are. Think about how, how frantic and frenetic. Jesus didn't say, hey, run with me. No, no offense to any runners in here. Jesus said, walk. That pace allows you to digest and understand things. And when I started taking on this mindset, mindset everything started popping. And it wasn't because I was smart. It was because I was seeing correctly. And you start to see the narrative of Scripture in the story format. It's brilliant. Where God is constantly bringing order to chaos. What do we call things that, that are out of order? Disorder. Chaos, right? Began to help me uh, understand 
really that the way of grace is, there's an order to it. And the way of legalism is disordered. The way of grace is relationship first. Friendship with God. Established through the finished work of the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which then allows me to to move next in the order to receive my identity as a child of God, as a son, as a daughter, which moves me into being and operating in the way and manner in which God asked me to operate, to bring shalom to this earth, to fulfill my calling, which then allows me, lastly, behavior. My distinction, not my perfection, but I'm holy, I'm distinct as a result of what? Relationship, identity, being. Legalism is the reverse order. Behavior first, being, identity, and then relationship. Then I'll I'll do enough and I'll be good enough for God. How many of us have interpreted our life through that lens? And something became abundantly clear The story starts off with two trees. One tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We tend to think more of evil, but it's good too. And the other tree, the tree of life. Jesus said he came that we might have abundant life. Like we should be leaning in the one who celebrated seven festivals a year, the one that shows us meaningful meals and conversations about things that matter like life, not simply the latest sporting event, have deep, deep transformation to us. Not so much, and it's wonderful as as you think about the afterlife, but this life matters It matters to God. It matters to Jesus. We're going to end with communion, but I want to end with this incredible story uh, in Luke 24. Jesus with a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. So Jesus has been crucified. And it's three days later, and his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, which would have been about seven miles long which would take in about three hours. And Jesus comes to these people who are very despondent and he messes with them. It it lets me know that he's got a sense of humor because he's asking them like, uh, what are you guys discussing together as you're walking along? Jesus is messing with them. And they're like, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened in these days? What things, Jesus asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. See this, see this, your lens may have distorted this. Jesus, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. That would be the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, your Old Testament. Jesus lays the smack down about himself. Imagine what that was like. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. 
But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table, we call communion, the Lord's table. When he was at the table with them, he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. It's crazy. One of my friends was telling me that at the end of reading Torah, I might not get this totally right because he just told it to me. They, they, they make an exaltation about the tree of life from which they read from the Torah. Guys, it's, it's possible that the way that you've seen it, it's just the way you've seen it, but quite possibly not the way that it is. Have you thought that Jesus is boring? Have you thought that it was a bunch of rules and self-denial of things? Have you seen it to be life, abundant life? And as we go into communion, I pray that you'd ask the one that this meal would be more than just forgiveness. Yes, and. Yes and yes, forgiveness, thank God. But may our eyes be open as we partake. Would you tear off the top, take out the bread? Just ask for eyes to see and break and take and eat. Then you can tear open the cup, the new covenant, and ask for a spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of the true Jewish Jesus, that you might see him accurately take and drink. You can hold on to your cups. There's receptacles or trash cans when you're leaving. I want to invite you to stand up on your feet. And just right where you are, have a moment. The altar is the place where we let go of things. It's a place where we get our power back. If we're feeling disempowered, if you're here in this place, go ahead and stand up. Um, If you're here in this place and you felt disempowered, and you felt disempowered because the way that you've seen Life with Jesus has been cast in a cultural image or an upbringing that wasn't rooted in Scripture. And you want to see. I'm telling you, it's simple, but it's not easy. So I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. We're just going to pray. Father, I'm asking for every person here that you would uh, take off the scales like you did with Saul. Father, like Job in Job 42, he'd heard about you, but then he saw you. God, open eyes. As they continue to open up your life-giving, delightful, incredible word, Lord, I pray that you'd open their eyes. May they have a renewed sense of hunger, a renewed sense of vision. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.